Morning. Welcome to Westbridge. My name's Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's awesome to have you with us. Hello to everybody joining us online as well. Thanks for participating with us through that platform. And uh, today we're in week two of a series called Your Future Self Will Thank You. And the idea behind this series is that hopefully uh, we all have made some decisions in our life that our future self will look back at the decisions we're making today and go, man, thanks for making that decision. I know we've probably all got some things that our future self will look back and go, I wish you hadn't done that. I wish you hadn't said that. I wish you hadn't spent that or gone there. Uh, And so the goal is to say, man, during this series, what are the decisions we can make today that our future self would look back at the decisions we're making now and say, I'm glad you did that. Thanks for doing that. I'm reaping the benefits of the decision that you made in that season. And so uh, today, week two of the series, I want to just let you know the topic right up front. Today, your future self will thank you for the appetites that you tamed. Your future self will thank you for the appetites you tamed. It's interesting that in America, we tend to celebrate a lot of things with food. It's kind of part of how we celebrate, right? We, when there's a holiday, we eat food. And when there's a birthday party, we eat food. And when someone graduates, we eat food. And when someone gets married, we eat food. And it's like it's part of the celebration, it seems like. And food is pretty synonymous with celebrating in our culture. And uh, so much so that there is now like television shows and documentaries about food and uh, the Food Network is a real thing now, right? And uh, you've got Top Chef and Cupcake Wars and Hell's Kitchen and Chopped and Drivers Dive-In, what is it? Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives, right? Tongue Twister. So much around food. But when you think about it, it's not just Americans that have appetites and it's not just appetites for food. As humans, we have appetites for all kinds of things. We have an appetite maybe for progress, or maybe you have an appetite for acceptance, or maybe you have an appetite for respect, or maybe you have an appetite for fame, or maybe you have an appetite for wealth, or maybe you have an appetite for recognition, or for love, or for more things, for stuff. And today we're going to look at a story from a couple of brothers. Uh, We find this story in uh, the book of Genesis, the very first uh, book in the Old Testament, first part of the Bible. And in this, it's this this historic account of a family, and the Old Testament follows this family all the way through to the point of Jesus. But we're going to look at a couple of brothers and how uh, this impact on their lives because of appetites. And the first thing we need to understand is this. Number one, God gave us appetites. And so when we talk about appetites, I think it's important to recognize that comes from God. Like the reason that we have desire to do things is because God placed that within us. Appetites are a very natural and normal part of our lives. Think about this. Going back to the start of creation, uh, he created our desire for food. That's a God-given thing that you desire food, that you have that appetite. He created in us a desire for companionship. That's a God-given appetite. He created in us the, de- the desire for, uh, to drive and to succeed and to accomplish things and to um, acquire. And those things are within us because they're a part of the image of God within us. God gave us the desire to create, the desire to build things. That's all a part of God's image in us. So appetites are a good thing. The, the desires that we have move us forward. And without appetites, we wouldn't be able to accomplish the things that we accomplish. But there's something that we need to know when it comes to appetites. If appetites aren't managed, they become destructive. 
If appetites aren't somewhere along the way tamed, if they're not controlled, if they're not managed in some way, then they oftentimes become destructive. And we don't even need a Bible verse to tell us that. Our own experience probably bears that out. That uh, maybe you had something that you, was an appetite for you and you realized the more you pursued that, it actually became destructive in your life. We can look at our own lives and we recognize very quickly that if our appetites get out of control, they can actually cause harm. They can actually cause, for some of us, regret. And if we don't learn to manage our appetites, if we don't learn to manage, for instance, our appetite for companionship or sexual pleasure, uh, and we pursue it at all costs, it becomes destructive. If we don't learn how to manage our appetite for respect, then we can start to control people and demand things from people, and it can become destructive. If we don't learn to manage our appetite for money and stuff, then we can push ourselves and exhaust ourselves and work harder than we should and try to find our identity in that. It can become destructive. Appetites have to be managed. And yet here's a a really interesting and maybe a sobering thought. Appetites can be managed but never satisfied. Appetites can be managed but never satisfied. Think about this. It doesn't matter how much money you make or how much food you eat or how much success we achieve. There's only one word that our appetite knows, and it's the word more. Appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. And yet we all think there is someone or something, or some sort of achievement, some sort of recognition. If I could just achieve this, if I could just acquire this, if I could just accumulate this, if I could just reach this level at my job, if, uh, if only this relationship worked out, uh, if we just had this house, or if we lived there, if we had this car, or maybe some type of status that will finally make us feel like we've arrived. But we'll never arrive because the appetite only knows the word more. It, it always wants more. Think about it this way. How many times uh, I remember as a kid uh, going to Thanksgiving every year at my grandparents' house. And uh, we would, we'd push away from the table every year at Thanksgiving. You'd probably do the same thing, right? And you're just like, oh. And you didn't need that third helping, but, you know, it's Thanksgiving. And that's the excuse. And so and everybody pushes away from the table. And I remember my, uh, my grandpa and my dad and my uncles and everybody would be like, oh, I'm stuffed. I can't eat another bite, right? And, and everybody goes sit on the couch and watch football and fall asleep. They're like, yeah, I can't eat another bite. I don't know if I could ever eat again. What are you doing three hours later? You're making a turkey sandwich because that's what you do on Thanksgiving. Everybody's like, oh, where's the leftover turkey, right? And you're, and you're pulling out the leftover rolls and you're making the, the turkey sandwich in the afternoon. Uh, same is true with stuff. When I first bought my uh, 1988 Chevy Celebrity, sweet car. Didn't think I would ever need another car again. Loved that thing, man. Bench seats front and back. Could fit six people in that car. And it was big, like the front end arrived a couple of hours before the rest of me. And then I realized they make cars that start every time. (laughs) It's amazing. Same thing is true with sex. Nobody has sex and goes, that's pretty good. I'm good. Never want to do that again. (laughs) No one's satisfied. (laughs) It's true with achievement and progress. My first job, I was 13, was corn detasseling. That's where you... Go into a cornfield at 6 in the morning and you just start 
And you just walk down a row and you pull the top out of the corn. Did that when I was 13. When I was 14, I upgraded. 14 and 15, I worked as a janitor. I was like, all right, I'm moving up in the world. When I turned 16, I got a job at a hospital. And I was just doing busy work and answering phones and typing birth certificates and discharging patients and just a bunch of busy work. And then I was like, oh, man, as I got older, I was like, man, I want to keep moving up in the world, right? So I became a pastor. <laughs> Same thing is true of acceptance. We have an appetite for acceptance. And so I thought this would hopefully end in middle school or maybe high school, right? But here I am in my very, very early 40s. And I realize I still have this appetite for acceptance. And I still find myself comparing myself to other people and wanting to be accepted and wanting to be liked. What is that? It's an appetite. And no matter how much you're accepted, no matter how much you like, there's, there's an appetite for more. Same thing is true of success. Whenever you win something, whenever you accomplish something, you never think to yourself, that's great. I never have to win ever again. I'm, I'm great. I'm so glad that we, we won. I'm so glad that we accomplished. I think I'm good. I never, have to, I never need that feeling ever again. There's something in us that wants to keep winning and keep succeeding. There's something in us when it comes to appetites that always wants more. And that's not bad. In many ways, that is a reflection of God in us. Progress is a good thing. Being productive is a good thing. Taking on responsibility is a good thing, right? God created these appetites. But here's the reality. If they are not managed, if they're not tamed, if they're not controlled, then they can become very destructive. They can actually start to control us. And all of us understand that. And yet, all of us know appetites are very, very difficult to control. And here's why. Appetites always whisper now, never later. Appetites always whisper now, never later. Appetites always focus our minds on what is right here in front of us. We get very, uh, very narrow-minded. We get tunnel vision when we have an appetite because we just, we, we want this right here and we, we forget to take into consideration the context of later. Everything else becomes blurred. What we see is what we're emotionally attached to that's right in front of us. We see now and we forget about later because appetites always whisper now, never later. And here's why this is such an important topic for us today. Because your responses to your appetites will have an impact on your future. How you respond to your appetite today will have an impact on your future. It'll have an impact on tomorrow. It'll have an impact on whether or not your future self will thank you. Now, here's what I can tell you. Regardless of where you've been in the past, God wants you to start today and move forward and make wise decisions now. But how you handle appetites will impact whether or not you experience some regrets down the road or whether or not your future self will thank you. And I want to spend the rest of our time together looking at this story from a couple of brothers who really illustrates this point so well. I'll let you know right up front, this isn't a, a super feel-good story. Uh, it doesn't have a really great happily ever after necessarily. Uh, this isn't a story filled with bunnies or smiley faces or cotton candy or unicorns. This one is just a, a really practical story. But the reason we're going to look at this is because it holds a valuable lesson for each of us as it relates to our appetites. And the story we're going to look at involves an entire family, but really centers around these two brothers, and their names are Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob and Esau are twin brothers, but Esau was born a few minutes before Jacob. And so Esau is the firstborn. He's the oldest. And then Jacob is the younger of the two brothers. And here's what we know about them. In uh, Genesis, this is compiled uh, uh, 
thousands of years ago. And it's the story. Genesis, the first five books of the, of the scriptures are compiled uh, by Moses and put together and uh, tells us the story of the nation of Israel. And so he writes this, as the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman. But Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac, who was their dad, loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebekah, who was their mom, loved Jacob. Now, side note, just as a parenting strategy, I think it's a really not a good idea to pick favorite kids. Just saying, that might create some conflict. All right, so that's for free. You can take that with you. So here's these two brothers. They're very, very different from each other, okay? So first, you, have, you got Jacob. Jacob is a mama's boy, right? He's, he doesn't like to get his hands dirty. He likes to stay at home and clean, and he likes to watch the view and listen to Justin Bieber, and, uh, you know, he just hangs out, drives a Prius, and probably shops at Express for men. Very clean-shaven individual. Looks like the, you know, he'd be on a Calvin Klein ad, right? And then he's got his older brother. His brother is the exact opposite. His brother drives a 350 F-350 diesel truck with a gun rack in the back seat, you know. And uh, he, he loves to listen to Metallica. He wears snakeskin boots and probably watches Ultimate Fighting Championships. And, and somewhere along the way, puberty hit him with a vengeance. Like at 11 years old, he was shaven twice a day, had a big beard, looked like Chewbacca, Right. So these are the two brothers, very different from each other. In fact, these verses we just read say Esau loved to hunt wild game. So he enjoys the hunt and he enjoys eating the stuff that he hunted. And then that's Esau. Next verse says, one day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. So you get the picture, right? So Jacob's at home and he's, he's like baking some stuff and he's got his kiss the cook apron on and he's whistling some Katy Perry, you know. <laughs> And Esau walks in and he's hangry. He's like straight out of a Snickers commercial, right? And he is just hangry. And here's what happens. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. And he says it like this because this is how uh, kids say this. You've heard this phrase if you have kids. I'm starving, right? But it's always with a knee bend and then head. So it's like, I'm starving. (laughs) And we hear this every night from my six-year-old. We go, buddy, it's time for bed. Oh, I'm starving. Knee bend, head up. It's like, no, you just don't want to go to bed. I think that's what's happening here. So Jacob, Esau says to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Steep price to pay for this, right? Now, this is where the story gets interesting because Jacob finds himself in a unique situation. He has position over his older brother. That's not something that the younger sibling, uh, that's not a position the younger sibling often finds themselves in, right? So I have uh, an older sister who's two years older than me, and then I have uh, a younger brother who's a couple years younger than me, and then some other siblings that are younger. But uh, my brother and I, close in age, I was the older sibling, so I got to drive before he did. Uh, I for most of our life, have been taller, bigger, you know, uh, got to do things before he was able to do things. And so every once in a while, the younger sibling finds themselves in this scenario where they suddenly have leverage. Happened for me and my brother when I was probably seven years old, and he was about five years old. And um, my grandpa, my grandpa and grandma came to visit, and my grandpa bought like a bag of mini Snickers. And I remember he gave us each like two Snickers, and mine were gone in like two seconds. 
And my brother like stored his, he had like a, he had like a snicker stash. Like. And suddenly he found himself with leverage because I wanted more Snickers. And I was like, uh, you know, I was like negotiating with him. Like, what can I do for you to give me one of your Snickers? And, and uh, you know, and then he, being the smart younger sibling, just actually went behind my back and asked grandpa for more Snickers and grandpa just gave him more. And I didn't know this, so now he had even more leverage. He's got this stash. I'm like, where is this coming from? When you're the younger sibling and you find that you've got some leverage, you try to negotiate. And this is exactly what Jacob is doing. And apparently things haven't changed much between siblings in 4,000 years. And here's Jacob. And he realizes, I've got something that Esau wants. He wants this bowl of stew. And he goes, all right, I'll give you this bowl of stew. All you have to do is trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Let's get a notary public out here. You just sign that over to me and we'll be good to go. And you can eat this stew. And if you understand anything about this, this birthright in this culture, this is a really, really big deal. And you got to think this is a joke. Like no way Esau's going to go for this, right? For a bowl of stew to trade his birthright. And really the only thing that we have that kind of compares to it in our culture is like the royal family, right? From the United Kingdom. And you think about that and you go, well, here's, here's how this works. Prince William is in line to become the next king in the monarchy because he was born first and not Prince Harry. And that's just the way it goes. That's really the only thing that we have in our culture that really compares. But in ancient Near East culture, same thing. The oldest son was given the birthright from the father. And this is what it included. It included three things. First, it included uh, finances, wealth. The firstborn and the rights that came with that would give the firstborn son two to three times the inheritance that anybody else got. And Isaac was very wealthy. And so here Esau stood to gain two or three times the amount of inheritance than his brother Jacob. The second thing was influence. When you, when you become uh, the, when you're the firstborn and it passes on to you and you become the, uh, the patriarch of the family, then you become the one who makes decisions for the family. And if there's ever a disagreement, if there's ever tension, you become the judge. And the rest of the family does what you say. It's your call. And you have tons of influence. And the third is blessing. They believed that uh, the birthright, that God's blessing would pass on to the firstborn son. So think about this. This is a really big deal. Your future, your financial standing, your influence, uh, the blessing of God in your life is all attached to this birthright. And Jacob says to Esau, you want this bowl of stew? Just trade me your birthright. And it's kind of this crazy proposition. It's like if you saw a house that was for sale for a million dollars and you're like, let's just offer them a hundred and see if they take it. It's like no one's going to sell a million dollar mansion for a hundred bucks, right? It's like it'll never happen. But this is like... Jacob like floats this proposition to Esau and, and here's what happens. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? What good is my birthright? I'm, I'm, I'm starving, right? I'm dying here. I'm going to die if I don't eat soon, right? And uh, I, I can remember when I was a teenager, I think I ate six or seven times a day. I'm sure my parents loved it. And uh, Anybody who is a teenage guy or if you have uh, teenage boys, you know that they basically have two modes, right? And it's like sleeping and eating. This is what they do. And they eat, when they in eat mode, they eat anything. They're like goats. They would eat a can if you gave it to them, you know? It's like, slow down. And this is Esau. And he's like, I'm starving to death. I'm starving to death. If you can, 
By the way, if you can walk into the house and declare that you're starving to death, you're not starving to death. But that's how he felt in that moment. And you know why he felt like that? Because that's the power of an appetite. Appetites always whisper now and not later. Appetites get us to focus on this. I'm, I, I need this, I need this, I need this. And we can't see the context of later. Because we're so emotionally attached to what I need now. And what's interesting is that oftentimes what's good for me now isn't good for me later. Often what's best for me now in my own feeling and my own emotions is not what's good for me ultimately. That's the power of an appetite. And we look at Esau and he's willing to give up his birthright for a bowl of stew. And we think, are you kidding? Who would do that? Why, what are you thinking? Why would you do that? And the answer is that he is thinking about now and he is not thinking about later. And the story continues. But Jacob said, first, you must swear that your birthright is mine. He's like, let's make this thing official, okay? I don't want your word. I want you to swear an oath. And so Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn son to his brother Jacob. That doesn't seem real, does it? Like, who does that? There is no way that he could have realized what was taking place. No way he could realize the weight of that decision and what he was actually giving up. And I think that if we could go back in time, if our future self could go back 4,000 years and talk to Esau, you know what I think we'd do? I think that we would tap Esau on the shoulder. And I think we'd say, Esau, what are you doing? Think about this for a second. Be careful. There's a lot at stake here. I know that you're hungry. Uh, I, I know that you think you're starving to death, but don't give up your birthright. Something's going to happen. Let me tell you what will happen. I've had the benefit of coming 4,000 years from the future and coming back to tell you, I've, I've read stories about your family for the last 4,000 years. And let me tell you what's going to happen. Someone in your family is going to have a bunch of sons, and those sons are going to have large families, and their sons are going to have sons, and their daughters are going to have sons and daughters, and generation after generation until you become a nation. And when people are introduced to this nation and to the God of this nation, they're going to introduce the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. That's going to be the name. And if you trade your birthright now, you're giving that up. You're giving up that heritage. If you take this stew, that all changes. And Esau, here's the deal. 2,000 years from now, God is going to send someone into the world. He's going to send his son into the world in human form. And God promised, God promised your grandfather, Abraham, that through your descendants, that through your family line, he was going to bless the entire world, that all the nations of the world would be blessed because of you and your family. That's the promise that God made to your grandfather, Abraham. And, and when that takes place, and when that finally happens, there's going to be a guy named Matthew, and he's going to write about it. He's a follower of Jesus, and he's going to write about this history, and he's going to start with the genealogy, and he's going to start with your family line, and he's going to say that this Messiah, this promised one, the fulfillment of that, prom the, that promise came through Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But if you do this, this one decision in the now has the potential to rob you of all of that. Do you really want to trade all this 
for that one bowl of stew. And unfortunately, nobody was there to provide the context for Esau and to help him understand the consequences of his decision because appetites always whisper now, never later. We can only see what's in front of us at the moment. Everything else gets blurred and we get so focused in, we get so zeroed in on that one thing that we lose sight of the bigger context. Here's what ends up happening. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. And Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. Isn't that crazy? What a deal. This wasn't a lifetime supply of stew even. This wasn't like truckloads of stew are going to show up at your tent every day for the rest of your life. This is one bowl of stew. And for one bowl of stew, he traded his entire financial future. He traded his influence and he traded the blessing of God in his life for one bowl of stew. Who would do that? Who would make that deal? Who would make that kind of trade? Who would trade away their future success or future finances or future respect or their future hopes and dreams for one bowl of stew? You would. And I would if it was the right bowl of stew. See, all of us have the exact same inclination to give in to our appetites as Esau did. We just have a different bowl of stew. The bowl of stew just looks a lot different today, which this is why someone would risk the family that they've had for 15 years and all that that entails for a relationship with a coworker that lasts two months because appetites whisper now, never later. It's why uh, someone with adequate income will shipwreck their financial security by buying more and more and more stuff because appetites whisper now, never later. And every single one of us, if we are honest with ourselves, we have the propensity to give up something as big as a birthright, something that is down the road, a future hope and a future dream and influence and resources and God's blessing in our life because something is whispering to us now in the moment. Because appetites always whisper now, never later. And the reason we find it so difficult to manage our appetites is because somewhere inside we are emotionally attached to the now. And somewhere our brain deceives us and we start to believe that whatever this thing is now will actually bring us happiness. It will bring us satisfaction. It, it will satisfy that craving, that thing that we're longing for. And our brains lie to us. And they tell us that thing in the now, it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel better than you know it will. It's going to last longer than you know it will. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be good. It's going to satisfy. And then, it, and then it happens. And we make that decision. And we go down that path. And we say yes to that invitation. We spend that money. We, we, we make the decision to sacrifice later for now. And we regret it. We're terrible predictors of our emotional future. We tell ourselves, this night, this website, this car, this house, this relationship, this decision, uh, this, this particular financial decision, it's going to ultimately satisfy when in reality it never can. And we are absolutely terrible at predicting how strongly we will feel about how something is going to make us feel, about how long it will last and that's why we give in to our appetites. That's why we go down the wrong paths. It's emotional for us. 
And our vision gets blurred and we begin to focus on the now and we lose context of the later. And you have no idea what's at stake when you fail to manage your appetites. You don't know what God wants to do, what the, 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 the weight of what hangs in the balance of your decision to manage your appetites and to manage now versus later. So I'm begging you, don't risk your family. Don't risk your financial future. Don't risk your relationship with your kids. Don't risk your influence or your reputation. Look at Esau's legacy. As we read through the scriptures, Esau, the story of Esau comes up again and again. In Exodus, it ends and it says this, God said to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's, that's how God is known now throughout the scriptures is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Esau kind of disappears off the pages of history, except he's brought up again in Matthew. And Matthew uh, is recording for us. He's one of Jesus' followers. And, and he starts out and he says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And the prophecy is that Jesus would come through their family line and from the tribe of Judah. And Esau isn't even mentioned. The only other place he comes up is in Hebrews. Somebody writes this, make sure no one is immoral or godless like Esau. Like, that's great. He's the, he's the bad example. That's what you want to be, the sermon illustration of a bad example. Make sure no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. Hey, guys, you remember Esau? Yeah, we remember Esau. Don't do that. That's what the author of Hebrews says. Appetites are so powerful. We carry them around with us every day. But... We've got to learn to manage them because there's a lot at stake. I could give you the names of hundreds of people who lost a job, lost a marriage, lost relationship with kids, lost influence, lost reputation, lost money because of an appetite that they failed to control. An appetite that they failed to tame, an appetite that they failed to manage. And it's not that the appetite itself is bad, it's that appetites left unchecked, can become very destructive in our lives. And every single day, you and I will be offered a bowl of stew. Every single day, we're offered things that are whispering to us, hey, right here, just, this will satisfy him. Don't worry about later. Just experience this now. Just experience this now. It, you'll like this. This is good. And the reality is, It'll be very difficult some days. Some days are easier for us. Some days are more difficult. And so here's my practical help for us today. In order to tame them, we must reframe them. See what I did there? That rhymed. I was really proud of that. I worked really hard on that. In order to tame them, we must reframe them. What do I want to be one year from now? Here, here's how we look at our life. And when, we, when our appetite whispers now, it causes us to narrow our focus and blur our vision. And all we see is we get tunnel vision. What if we could reframe it in the context of something bigger? There used to be a, uh, a little gag that they used to do on uh, the Conan O'Brien show where they would zoom in on a picture. 
And it would be so far zoomed in that you couldn't even tell it what it was. And then people would try to guess, what, what is the thing that, that this is a picture of? And it would be like, it looks like green hair. I don't know. Is, is, that, is that somebody with their hair dyed green, right? And it's like someone's hair is like this long. And then they would zoom out and you'd go, oh, it's actually not that long. That's actually, it looks like grass. That's someone's yard. Okay, I realize that's what it is. That's my guess. It's yard. Then they'd zoom out again and you'd go, oh, it's a tennis ball. That's how zoomed in we were. It was the fuzz on a tennis ball that I thought was somebody with their hair dyed green. And they would do different pictures like that and add funny stuff in. And, and that's what happens to us. It's like once you see the whole picture, then you realize, you're like, oh, that's not, that's not someone with their hair dyed green. It's not even someone's yard. It's a tennis ball. Now I can see the whole thing clearly, and now it makes a lot more sense. And this is what happens to us in the context of appetites, is that our appetites, we're, we're zoomed in so far, our, our vision gets blurred on later, and suddenly all we can see is whatever we are emotionally attached to in the moment. And instead, we've got to reframe it, and we've got to pull out, and we've got to go, okay, what, what does this look like 10 years from now? Let me see the whole picture clearly. Ah, maybe that's not the best decision as it relates to the next 10 years of my life or the next 30 years of my life or where I actually want my life to go. Maybe that's not the best decision. And so we've got to reframe it. We've got to understand the context. In light of, in light of the whole picture, where, where, what do I want my relationship with my kids to look like 10 years from now? Because right now it's saying you can make a lot more money if you work, just work a little harder. You just got to work on Saturdays. You just got to work on the weekends. It's okay. I mean, your, your, your financial future is going to pay off. Man, that's, that's whispering now. But what, is, what do I want my relationship with my kids to look like? I think that might sacrifice that. Man, don't worry about this relationship with that person. I mean, it's exciting. It'll fulfill you. It'll, be, it'll satisfy you. Yeah, but this is what I want my marriage to look like. You, you can buy that. It's not that big of a deal. You, you deserve it. Enjoy it. Yeah, but when I, when I recognize and look at my whole financial picture, this is what I want it to look like. These are what my future hopes and dreams are. And if anything in the now has the potential to rob you of your future hopes and dreams, then it's not worth it. That's your bowl of stew. What is it that, that thing that right now is whispering to you? And it's promising you that it's going to satisfy you. And it's promising you that it's going to last longer and be better than you realize. That's your bowl of stew. Or maybe this. What is that thing in, that, that you know you're trying to talk yourself into? And wisdom, you know wisdom is just gnawing at you. And it's just like, and you're like, go away, wisdom. I want this right now. And wisdom's going, that's not a good idea. And your appetite's going, no, 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 come on, come on, come on. And you're trying to talk yourself into it because you know if I pull out and see the big picture, I know that's not the wise decision. What is that? That's your bowl of stew. So where do you want to be in your life down the road? If that bowl of stew has the potential to rob you of your future hope and, hopes and dreams, then it's not worth it. It will cost you more than you ever realized. Name that appetite. Reframe it. Bring context to it. And that will allow you to manage and tame those appetites. Ultimately, there's only one thing that brings satisfaction. At the end of the day, at the end of all of it, the reason we're so emotionally attached to those things in the moment is because we've deceived ourselves to believe that that will satisfy us, and then it doesn't. And then one more, and then it doesn't, and one more, and then it doesn't. Because at the end of the day, you and I were created to find our satisfaction in one thing and one thing only. 
You and I, we were created by God and for God. And until we acknowledge that and admit that, life will never really make sense. Life will be one empty pursuit after another. It'll never leave us fully and finally satisfied. You were created and I was created to exist in loving community with God and with one another. And every one of us, from the first human beings to every one of us today at some point said, God, thanks but no thanks, going to live life my own way. And it caused brokenness between us and God and us and each other. And as human beings, what we've been doing is we've been trying to pursue appetites to fill that emptiness ever since. And nothing ever fully and finally satisfies because it's not what we were created for. We were created by God and for God. We were created to find our satisfaction, to find our fulfillment, to find our identity, our security in God and in God alone. And so at the right time in human history, God sent Jesus into this world so that we could experience life to the fullest, a life that truly satisfies. And he came to earth to show us what that looks like and to express his love. And, and in the ultimate expression of love, he allowed himself to be put to death. His body was laid in a tomb. And according to multiple eyewitness accounts, he rose from the dead. And here's what that means. There is more to this life than this life. Just this life alone ultimately cannot satisfy. There's more to this life than this life. Death is not the end. And you and I have been invited to be a part of God's family forever. And you don't behave your way into that. You don't earn your way into that. You don't church attend your way into that. It is what you and I were created for. And now Jesus has invited us to simply grab on to that purpose for which we were created. If you've never said yes to that, I want you to know you can find satisfaction in that. There's, there's nothing else that you have to prove. You can find your identity, your security, your satisfaction in Jesus. And if you've never said yes to that invitation, I want to invite you to do that right here, right now, by just agreeing with this simple prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you. And I thank you that you never walk away from me. I realize... In my attempt to fill the emptiness, I've made some decisions along the way that have caused me regret. But I want to, starting now, regardless of what's in my past, thank you that you care more about my future. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And then help me to follow you as best as I know how. I want to give you control of the steering wheel of my life. I, I want to surrender to your, your way of living life. And help me to trust you. Help me to follow you as best as I know how from this moment on. And God, I pray for every one of us. As we do our best to follow you, our appetites are constantly whispering now and never later. Promising things in the now that they can't deliver. So my prayer is may we find the strength to reframe that appetite in the context of later. And may we find our satisfaction fully and finally in you. God, I pray, give us the wisdom in our own lives as we reflect on what we've heard today. Give us the wisdom to know how to apply this and then give us the courage to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.